Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Molo San Bonani, hello, how's it? And shalom to you. Welcome to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty and I'm joined, of course, by Sara Gan. Sara, good morning. Buketov. <laughs> morning indeed. And, um, a, a, a great day. It's a fantastic day out there. I hope you had a chance to take a bit of a walk after your morning prayers just to say, um, hi to your neighbors, you know, be, be friendly. It's one of those days, I think, where we can actually be happy to be South Africans for a moment. Yes. Um, Sarah, we have a jam-packed show today, do we not? Uh, including a pre-recorded interview with the CEO of the IRR, Dr. C- Franz Crenier. We talk about all sorts of things on that. So yeah. we'll bring you that in the major segment, um, just after 9.20. Um, of course, it, with it being a pre-recorded interview, you know, it would be very difficult to take any calls or any comments, but we do welcome you commenting and, um, uh, you know, sending in your comments, including, of course, um, excuse me, giving us a call on the studio number at 010-140-3020 or send us a telegram at 061-895-1019. If, hey, if you're old school like me, then send us an SMS at 34519. We will take some of the comments at the end of the segment, uh, the pre-recorded segment, and we'll take some of those questions then. Um, we're going to go to our first break real quick, and when we come back, we'll chat to you about some of the big news items that I made the week. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. I, as I said, my name is Big Daddy Liberty, joined of course by Saragon. Um, Sara, yes. let's look at the big items that have made news um, in, you know, the sort of past week, mm-hmm. the past weekend, etc., etc. Um, top of mind has to be the ANC 108 um, year birthday bash. It seemed a rather muted affair, wasn't it? I, I'm not sure if it was so much a muted affair as a the response to it from the from the public from ANC members was not another year like last year. It was incredibly. I mean, I read Cyril Ramaphosa's speech. It was incredibly dull, incredibly uninteresting, and incredibly reflecting absolutely nothing new to for the South African public. It covered everything in the South African political sphere and quite a few in the international sphere politically. And you can't say that much. You've got to confine your speeches to some distinct issues in which you spell out what you're going to do. And it was like every other speech that anyone has ever given at, 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 uh, at these, at these bashes. It was, it, it, it should have covered like three big items that covered absolutely everything. I think I would have fallen asleep if I were in it. But there was a sort of sideshow issue to it, and that was that I think this was the year that the people of Kimberley and Kalashewe were not thrilled to have the ANC absolutely. there, the, the, the Blue Light Brigade. And you have that sense where while the, the country is suffering and, and looking at its, next, its, its downgrade to junk, they were having this party, they were cutting this cake, and they were celebrating with flutes of champagne. Yes. And that is like something out of 
it's 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 dystopian. Absolutely. I mean, one for the Christians. Um, on my social media feed, I literally sort of broke down the ANC 108 uh, birthday bash using the seven deadly sins. Mm. Um, and you know, pride was one which really resonated with me. This idea that you have these politicians who will sing and dance and, and you know cut these mm. lavish cakes and drink this wonderful wonderful champagne on stage. Mm. Meanwhile, the people watching this mm. perhaps are going home to a shack mm. or going home to a situation where there may be no food in the no home. Water. There's no water. There's mm. no electricity, literally. Mm. How do you celebrate like that? How do you have this wonderful display of, of lavishness th- in front of people who you're failing? Uh, now, to you and I, uh, I'm sorry, to you and me, I think that that, that sort of display is in very, very bad taste. And it always has been. I mean, I've likened it to, you know, it, it's almost... Um, Childish because children like to celebrate every birthday, but adults and organizations celebrate milestone birthdays. Yes. And to do this every year, I don't know if it's a sign of bragging or actually a sign of insecurity. Yes. Because the underlying theme of almost every, um, certainly the last few years has been trying to forge ANC unity. And when somebody, when anybody says that, it means they are completely and utterly disunified. Mm. And Maybe this is for them. It's not actually for for anybody else. But yeah. that speech certainly, you know, if you if you talk about everything, you actually say absolutely nothing. Absolutely. But I think this was the year where, you know, where it didn't. People were not impressed that some people are doing very well on their behalf. Yeah, they were not impressed at all. Absolutely. Join the conversation. Call the studio number at zero one zero one four zero three zero two zero. Send us an SMS at three four five one nine or a Telegram at zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Sarah. A very interesting week also with regards to, again, it's almost linked to an extent with ESCOM. Of course. Um, and I, here's how I'll segue into this. It was very funny that on the sort of weekend and week, um, that we have the ANC celebration, mm. um, ESCOM announces no load shedding. Suddenly mm. the grid is totally fine and everything <laughs> is hunky dory. And it's so, it's, it's so shallow and it's so <laughs> obvious. Meanwhile, of course, there's this risk, yeah. um, you know, that's been written about uh, apparently a memo sent to municipalities across the country that we face a possible stage eight mm. load shedding. What even is that? I mean, uh, like it, it's I think I think it said it's something like um, 10, hour, t- 10 or 20 hours, 20 hours over 48 hours will be will be low shared. Yeah. If it's that, I mean, I, I looked at it earlier, but I, I, I've forgotten it now. You, you're starting to look, we're starting to look like the DRC. Absolutely. Or, or worse. Um, Absolutely. And, okay. and, and it's, and it's, it's, it's uh, of course, ESCOM was very quick to deny it, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the denials ring a bit hollow when you have a place like the OR Tambo. Mm. What's supposed to be a world-class international airport huh. being plunged into darkness in, on Monday morning, complete darkness. You, you would have rocked up as someone who's maybe left the country and gone, is this like a zombie apocalypse movie? <laughs> like, it, I mean, some of the videos that came out of that were, looked absolutely terrifying, mm-hmm. walking in these massive spaces in a very sort of claustrophobic way in, in total darkness. But that speaks to the nature of the country, doesn't mm-hmm. it? We, we're plunged in darkness and we're in this claustrophobic environment where the politicians seemingly are the ones who are constricting our mm-hmm. ability to Make decisions but, about our lives. But it's extraordinary because what came out of the conference was an undertaking. And uh, so, uh, one of our colleagues, Terence Corrigan, said, you know, sort of doing and promising and uh, uh, undertaking. Yes. It, it, was, it was one of those. And the problem is that they're talking as if we, we are in a tight spot and we've got to get something, things done and we'll do the what do you mean we'll do this? We should have done this three years absolutely. ago. There is absolutely no sense of urgency. And I think part of that is the, the, disuni- the disunity in the ANC aggravated by the fact that they are 
they are pursuing a 1950s-style Marxist agenda yes. for what South Africa, for the socialist utopia that's, that's going to be created for and South Africa. We've made this point offline that the, the moment you have any, and again, the record of history is absolutely crystal clear on absolutely. this. Like, take it to the bank. Whenever you've had politicians who embark on a process of centralizing power, centralizing control, making decisions on behalf of you know the millions of people who they govern. And not giving individuals the, the freedom, the liberty to pursue their own lives. You have societies that, that slide into the, the, the arena, if you will, of absolute misery, poverty, and of course, um, tyranny in most cases. I mean, the, I don't know how the ANC can square the idea of creating this, this capable state, this capable developmental state, when it has Absolutely over 25 years eviscerated the SOEs. Absolutely. I mean, what's suddenly going to change that's going to make them capable? Yeah. So you're going to have an incapable Marxist state yeah. governing the lives of people and, and in a very sort of almost soft racist way and very patronizingly, yeah. you're going to tell people what is good for them. Absolutely. And they know entirely what is good for I them mean, and that it's not that government. Well, one of the last points I like making on this is whenever you see just the sheer Incompetence that we're seeing, you know, from the government. Mm. Remember, whenever the government runs something holy, you often see the inefficiencies, um, you know, become much more stark mm. because you have no other options to run to. Um, whenever you have a situation where, uh, you know, someone talks about the capable state or some mm. politician comes and says, you know, give me a little bit more power so that I can do this or that, mm. always remind yourself that individuals, you and me, are more capable than mm. any other individual who claims to run or wants to rule over our lives. That's that's one lesson that I, as a liberal, I always push out into the public sphere. But sorry, let's move on a little right, bit right, right. Um, uh, to, to a topic which I'm very passionate about and often leaves me rather emotional and, and, and you know, sort of in, infuriated. Um, the good news, of course, today, as we heard on the news bulletin, is that a lot of these uh, individuals who are involved in the anti-Semitic attacks mm. in New York, mostly, but in America, mm. um, are essentially mm. now, you know, either facing trial or um, and mm. essentially serious consequences about to meet out to mm. them. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that a serious conversation needs to be had mm. in the United States about perce- perceptively, at least, the the rampant anti-Semitism that you're seeing out of. Invariably black mm. American communities mm. A lot of these guys who are facing trial there are, are black Americans mm. And some of them belong to this crazy terrorist group Called the uh, the black Hebrew Israelites yeah. um, There seems to be a unwillingness To have that conversation in America Isn't there? Well you see one of the problems is It's, it's, it's the woke community's worst nightmare Because if there's any group of people Who meets the victimhood intersectional moment The oppression it, Olympics Yeah the oppression Olympics It is the the, the Ascribing it to, to, to black people. Yes. Um, the problem is, and, and not ascribing, not including the Jews in that, uh, mm-hmm. in that conversation, and that's a, that's a whole another conversation. The problem here is you now have the, the sort of uber victims. Yes. Victimizing in the most extraordinarily ugly Actually way. meeting our violence. Violence, yeah. And, and saying things that, you know, make your hair stand on in, are the perpetrators of the very racism that the woke community says that you know, all the people in the intersectional, in international, intersectional society are suffering from, yes. most of which is now mythical. I mean, you have a situation also as we sort of head towards our first break, and after the break we'll have that interview with France Grenier, um, which is pre-recorded. But you have the situation, uh, Sarah, where 
there is a, and you, you rightly call them out as, as the intersectionalists, these, the social justice warrior mm. types, the people who believe that you can trade on race, identity, mm. et cetera, et cetera, who then are stumped, as you may mention, when you have a situation where the very sort of people who have a history of oppression in America, in other words, black Americans. Of, of being victims. Are now the, 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 the perpetrators again. Mm. Of um, the violence, the oppression against a, another grouping, the Jewish people. We need to remind them. And if I was in America, I'd, I'd literally go on the radio then and say the exact same thing. Jewish people have a history of oppression, but how they have dealt with it is by saying we can be stronger as a people, we can be united as a people, and we can be cohesive as a community. And that doesn't mean hating other people. That doesn't mean lashing out. And I think that's a message the Black American okay. community can learn. Anyway, as we come back from the break, we'll have that interview with Dr. Franz Crenier from the Institute of Race. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, everybody, to the IRR show. I'm your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty, and of course, I am joined in studio by the wonderful other half of the show, Miss Sarah Gon. Sarah, before the break, we made mention of the fact that um, we have a very special guest in studio today, don't we? We have someone who I think is very great at setting out. Um, the political economy in South Africa in a lucid manner and really through the lens of liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Franz Cronier, without much further ado, let me actually welcome the head honcho himself on to the show, the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, Mr. Franz Cronier. Franz, hello, hello. It's very nice to be here, uh, with you and with Sarah, who I think uh, collectively are two of the bravest uh, commentators. <laughs> And I hear uh, making a name for yourselves with this show, which it deserves, because there's very little around in our media space that I think is prepared to put uh, honestly and directly uh, the sort of information that people deserve to hear about where we're at as a country and what our prospects are over the uh, next several years. Well, there you have it. Uh, the flattery, of course, will get Mr. Crenier everywhere. Um, great note to begin this interview uh, on. Um, France, we're going to jump straight into it. And I think the first one is, you know, there's a listener right now going, the Institute of Race Relations, what is that? Mm. The Institute is an organization that was established in the 1920s uh, with a view to opposing racial discrimination in the country. And it did so very bravely in the two decades ahead of apartheid rule. It would rise through the apartheid era to become uh, the most prominent anti-apartheid think tank in the world. And it developed there its unique methodology of using uh, expert research and analysis uh, and media coverage in order to create pressure. And it creates pressure on political leaders or business leaders or government leaders in order to abandon counterproductive policies and embrace policies that can ensure that South Africa reaches its great uh, potential as a prosperous and free and open society. That's a mandate it continues uh, to drive at today. It is an independent organization. It's not dependent on major contributors or donors. So it can say what it believes to be true. And it is very loyal to its liberal roots, which means that it advocates uh, clearly and unambiguously Uh, for property rights, uh, for a market economy, uh, for non-racial policy, and for the rule of law. Franz, um, a lot of people would say we achieved our political independence in 1994. The ANC came in and saved us from the dreaded uh, Nationalist Party um, 
sort of corruption and, and uh, hegemony, why would we need still need a, a liberal think tank? Look, one of the great successes, I think, of, of the Institute was the role that it played in creating a climate of opinion that made possible the democratic transition. It's uh, very strong on this. We, we practice what we call uh, the, the methodology of the battle of ideas. And what that holds is that the winner of any great uh, political or ideological contest, as, as that around apartheid and, and, and uh, liberalizing reform was, will ultimately be the side that over time injects the greatest volume of compelling argument into the public domain. Societies change at points of crisis. Uh, they don't change in the still periods between crises. And the trajectory of the change will usually be dictated by the side that had the greatest influence on public opinion at the moment of the crisis. We, we quote very often the lament of General Westmoreland, who had been the supreme commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, who would later agree uh, with the comment that uh, the Americans lost that war on the streets of Washington and in the living rooms of America and not in the jungles of Southeast Asia. So in, a, in, 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 in helping to facilitate the climate of opinion that made that yes vote possible in Mr. de Klerk's referendum, that was the culmination of decades of work. But I, 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 I take issue with the part of your comment that we, we were liberated by the ANC. And many in the ANC played a very important part in the country's liberation. But uh, they, they were in a sense, uh, and, and a, obviously an influential part, but uh, South Africa's liberation was a function of the collective efforts of millions of people uh, to free themselves from the tyranny of apartheid rule. On the point of transition, it was very clear to us that uh, South Africa would continue to face, uh, face great risks to its future as a free and open society. Some of those risks were economic, mm -hmm. and the government of the day would need to introduce pragmatic policies in order for the economy to grow strongly enough to create the opportunities to pull very uh, large numbers of people out of poverty. To an extent, if you read what we've written, uh, our time limited here, but uh, there's a lot to read in the public domain. We, we, in, in the initial years, I think South Africa achieved some successes. Uh, it took the ANC in office uh, 13 years to turn the budget deficit into a surplus. Over that uh, first decade in power, uh, the uh, debt level of the government was cut in half. And by the time that uh, uh, Mr. Mbeki departed, uh, the economy had been growing at 5% for four consecutive years, which is the first time it had done that since the 1970s. And uh, a lot of that had its origins in the pragmatism of gear, which was the main uh, sort of policy driver of the ANC. And uh, in-house, we think a lot inspired gear. Some was battle of ideas influence of groups such as ours. And some was also a strategic concession on the part of, of, of Mr. Mbeki and Mr. Mandela that the mess economically that they'd inherited from the uh, nationalist, uh, white nationalist government was such that if they did not introduce liberalizing reforms, the, the budget speech would be written uh, by the IMF within a matter of years, and they escaped that fate. When the I, I, I see Sikhle there, give me one minute, sir. Uh, when, when, as a result of that initial success, living standards in South Africa improved appreciably. 
in the first decade after 1994. And it's not right to say, as many people do, that life did not get better in South Africa. We did not have jobless growth. In fact, through that first decade, the number of people with jobs doubled. Service delivery was not in the main a failure, although it was weak in many respects. Uh, consider that through that first decade, 10 formal houses were built for every shack that was newly erected in the country. We understood, though, through all of that, that uh, 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 several risks, uh, ideological, uh, political, otherwise, continue to present themselves in the country. And eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, uh, something we've, uh, we know very well and have long learned through our long experience. And that is indeed what happened towards the end of December 2007, mm. when Mr. Nbeki was ejected as leader of the ANC, a flawed individual who had created many of the circumstances of his own demise and, and set us up for much of the corruption and state capture that would later follow. Uh, a complicated character, therefore, at strong points and weak points. And uh, our role, I think, and the relevance of it has been demonstrated by what the country has been through in the last decade. Real per capita GDP is now falling. We're becoming poorer. Mm -hmm. The progress we made in raising living standards is being reversed. We track that in the data. The ideological bent of government policy has turned and has become hostile. And uh, we'll get into it further, I'm sure, this morning. But we are now in considerable peril. Uh, and uh, the importance of groups such as the one that I am uh, pleased to lead is as great as it has ever been. Now, Franz, you make mention, and I want to get to the, the, the meaty bits here, because you are at the helm of a 90-year-old organization. Surely you're not doing the same things that you've been doing over the 90 years to reach new audiences. For instance, Sarah and I are one iteration to an extent of what you guys do, right? Because we're reaching new audiences, new ways of doing things. Please briefly talk to us about that as we then head towards talking about the, uh, the issues of the day. Look, on questions of principle, what is important to us, we haven't budged one inch over mm -hmm. almost a century. We stand for the very same uh, questions. When we say that the policies of the government should be non-racial, that people should benefit from government policy because they're poor, not because they're white or because they're black, we're 100% there. We've never moved. On uh, questions of strategy, the broader strategy remains the same. Mm -hmm that uh, you need to influence public opinion in order to drive public policy, and we do that uh, very effectively. The theatres, uh, the stages on which we do that, have, however, begun to change. Um, we're still heavily reliant on mainstream uh, media. I was in a meeting this morning where my media director reported that last year my colleagues placed over a 1,000 opinion articles in the country's newspapers, as, as just one example. Uh, a target he set for them this year, I think, is 1,800 interviews in the mainstream media, each one a little argument in favor of liberalizing reform. And then we've created, invested a lot in new platforms, uh, such as social uh, media, a uh, lot of investment in YouTube, which we think will become uh, uh, very big. Uh, future means of communication. There's a lot of hype around it, and I think the hype is deserved. For the time being, our reach in traditional media remains uh, uh, vast. Uh, we're reaching several hundred thousand people a day, in, 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 if, if, I, if I read the numbers. But I think the investment we've made in social and non-traditional forms of media is going to pay off uh, over the next decade as we talk to younger and newer audiences on their devices, cutting out the middlemen which have been the mainstream media editors historically. 
uh, France, uh, one of the things that makes me, uh, I find fascinating watching with the IRR is the fact that you, the, the range of experience and uh, knowledge within the organization. Are the, are, are, are the older, are the older members of the staff uh, sort of understanding what the younger members of the staff who are approaching these platforms, are they, are they getting into it? Are they, are they supporting it? Because as on this program, we have a, a huge age range of, uh, of listeners. I think we've, we've, we've managed to strike a very useful uh, balance. Um, our more elderly analysts, uh, some of them uh, were probably approaching their, their 80s. And um, uh, we've got in the team youngsters straight out of university. Now, I, I can't understand why any firm would dispense with the kind of policy and economic and political expertise that comes from an individual who might have spent four or five or six decades in this business. And we've meshed that very well with the technological understanding and enthusiasm of younger members of staff. And I think that's why the quality of our analysis has been very good, while the extent of our reach has been enormous. There, there is no other entity that rivals the kind of reach and influence that this organization has on policy decisions taken by many entities uh, in the country. And it's a, it's a relationship that I want to maintain and continue, that our younger uh, analyst colleagues benefit from the vast experience of their more uh, senior peers. When we hire people, we hire them on, I think, two grounds. We're not terribly interested in your qualifications or so. We want to see that you are uh, tough and courageous, that you will bravely stand up for unpopular ideas in the face of public criticism. And that's true of uh, all our colleagues, and you two are great examples of that. And then we look for super, super bright people. We want the cleverest people in the room. And uh, I think we have that. And, in fact, walking down the corridor of our offices in Johannesburg, I'm sometimes struck by the fact that I'm uh, I'm surrounded by my uh, by much higher caliber uh, people, and uh, that is is another strength that we bring to the organisation. So we've got the seniority and experience. We've got these brave chaps who stand up for what is good and right in the face of whatever withering criticism comes their way. And when you convene what I call the brains trust around our boardroom table, what comes out of that is very impressive. Franz, we're going to move the conversation along uh, just a bit um, to, you know, we talk a lot about, and you made mention of it actually, the, the battle of ideas. And many people might be wondering, okay, what are these ideas that you're referring to? On this show, we make a big point of saying that we view the day's issues, whether it's the news of the week, opinion analysis through the lens of liberalism. And we talk a lot about the Daily Friend um, platform, which we are both part of. Remember, listener, it's www.dailyfriend.co.za for all your news, opinion, and analysis. Um, but France, you made mention of the battle of ideas. What are the ideas that we are facing as South Africans that are actually crippling or impugning, sorry, the quality of life that South Africans uh, endure? What, what, do you, what is it exactly that you're fighting against that affects South Africans? Well, there's an ideological contest that, that inspires policies. Policies reflect the ideologies and dominant ideas of people who make decisions. And uh, let's make it very practical. South Africa has an appalling history of racial discrimination, and we carry the scars of that to this day. And we can measure those scars in the millions of people who do not have jobs or proper standards of living or access to electricity or housing and the like. 
the approach of the government and many of its supporters in, in the media and many in business is that race-based mechanisms need to be used. People should be advantaged because they are black. We disagree with that fundamentally. And we say that empowerment policies are important. We are strong supporters of policies of affirmative action. But the point that we make is that the beneficiaries of those policies should not benefit because of their race. They should benefit because of their established socioeconomic disadvantage, because they are poor. So there's a fundamental divide. The government's approach is racial nationalist. Our approach is let's have these policies that are important. There's a moral reason to have them. But the beneficiaries must benefit because they are poor. Second example of such a divide. Many in our societies think that there should be restrictions on things that people are allowed to say and think. That if your views are politically incorrect, you should be deplatformed, to use the terminology. You should not be allowed uh, to express that opinion. I believe a, a, a cartoonist we used quite often while I was away on leave, uh, Jeremy Nell, was his Facebook page was was disabled by uh, that entity because of a perfectly legitimate comment he had made about uh, racial stereotypes in our country. So where many in the society introduce hate speech laws and the type, like type of thing, we think South Africa's criminal injuria laws are more than sufficient to protect people. There should be no limits on what you say or think short of those statements imminently threatening physical harm to another person. A third example of the divide is that many in our society think that redress and redistribution of wealth is the path to prosperity. Mm. Our argument is that can never work. You can cut up the pie in any way you choose. Unless you grow it substantially, you're not going to become a more prosperous society. So we think that redress can best be achieved uh, not through the redistribution of wealth, the seizure of property, uh, property rights and the like, but rather through policies that uh, enable vast investment inflows into the country so the economy can grow very quickly and create the opportunities for more people to enter the mainstream economy while allowing the, the taxation that will sustain South Africa's very important welfare system. Francie, it sets out quite um, well, you know, some of the ideas that you're fighting against. But let's be specific, because a lot of the things you're mentioning are things that we're facing right now as South Africans. In other words, an assault on our freedoms that South Africans are facing right now. And we'll just use two areas. Let's focus maybe on just health care and um, property rights in particular. Let's begin on, on property rights as we sort of wrap up the, the last eight minutes of our chat. France. I have a property. I'm being a hypothetical South African. I have a property. I'm a white South African, maybe somewhere in uh, Pumalanga, wherever. And I'm hearing politicians talking about expropriation without compensation. I don't have anything to worry about. Do I, France? When, um, here's, here's, I've been doing this now for more than 15 years. And here's one thing I've learned. That when a politician tells you they intend to do something, you are best advised to believe them Mm -hmm. and take them at their word. And if you are a property owner in South Africa today, you are running a significant degree of strategic risk because it is the policy of the government to change the constitution mm. to allow the seizure of property without compensation. That is not limited to land at all. Yeah. Land is the thin end of the wedge. Given the historical associations with the denial of property rights to black South Africans mm-hmm. uh, over a very long period of time, But if you possess any asset in the country, 
you are at risk of that asset being seized. You mentioned the question of health care. The national health insurance policy of the government is essentially one to expropriate the private health care sector and aspects thereof. Mm. If there's a doctor out there who, when he first heard about land and expropriation, thought, well, you know, those farmers have a problem, uh, did he at that moment realize that it might be his practice that is the first to go? Property rights are like pregnancy. You, you, you are or you're you not. Are. You have them or you don't. When you allow the incremental dilution of those rights, mm. the examples of other societies around the world are that the extent and reach of that erosion will grow and grow and grow for a rapacious government to seize any asset that it can get its hands on. Mm. Uh, we've been saying in speeches since this expropriation stuff really hit the headlines, and we've been warning about it for a decade before then, mm. because we could see it in, 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 in policy commentary, and we could pick up the chatter from our own interactions, that in many respects all South Africans are farmers today. And I think should this expropriation business pass, uh, a lot of people, will realize the truth in that. We are opposing it very strongly. We're running the biggest lobby in the country against it. Uh, the lobby has various aspects. One is international awareness, and we travel the world warning investors of the risks. One is the media, where we are particularly active. And I'd say that the great volume of anti-EWC uh, uh, information to enter the public domain over the past two years has come out of my colleagues who are working on that. And we are in the late stages of a legal strategy in order to uh, put paid to the government's expropriation efforts. I think it's so important, Zikle and Sara, that if we lose this battle on the question of property rights, we'll lose the country for more than a decade. Mm. Mm. Uh, the, 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 this, is, this is not a question of, of redress. If, uh, if the government truly cared about its citizens, government hospitals would not look like they do. Mm. This is not an effort to put black South Africans onto commercial farms. There is no policy of this government today, for all that it says about expropriation, that ends with a black man sitting on his stoop with his title deed in his hand, looking out over his new commercial farming venture. And that is Franz Krenier from the Institute of Race Relations setting out a very important point. I want to take a quick, quick break. I know the conversation is getting very nice, um, but I want to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for the last nine minutes of the segment. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Hey guys, welcome back to the IRR show. Of course, here with your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gunn. We have in studio Mr., uh, excuse me, Dr. Franz Crenier from the Institute of Race Relations, the, uh, head honcho over there. And before the break, he was making a very important point around, um, property rights. The, the risk that is of expropriation without compensation, not just being about land. And of course, I was being facetious in my question. It's not just about white South Africans either. You know, it's politicians when they come after your Property rights, they'll come after you regardless of race. The black, young, urban individual who's trying to make it um, and buying their first property also faces the risk of a greedy politician um, saying, you cannot own this. Uh, France, you were making a point before the break, and I wanted you to really hash it out, that um, it's not just about, you know, land, the physical land. And it's definitely not about redress either. There's not going to be a big population of black land-owning South Africans at the end of this uh, of a, of no, a what, what, what essentially the, the EWC policy as it relates to land of the government uh, comes down to is to nationalize that land and place it in 
in government control. But the reach of it is far beyond that. The security industry is threatened with nationalization. Mm. New oil and gas policy proposes a significant free carry for the state in new oil and gas ventures that may undermine a such investment to a considerable extent. And, and, and don't think that, that you're unaffected by this just because you don't own assets. Um, in serious places, uh, it is very well understood what the implications of this may be. And that explains, as much as anything else does, why South Africa's levels of fixed investment as a proportion to GDP are virtually at zero, which explains why the economy is not growing, which in turn explains why uh, levels of unemployment are not just uniquely high. Our levels of unemployment are probably now at least four to five times the average rate of emerging markets around the world. And so if, 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 if you're a, a, a chap who can't get out of poverty and you're trapped in a shack because you can't get that job that would give you the chance to put your kids in a position where they might have a better life and you want to diagnose the reason for that, a lot of the reason for that is the uncertainty created by government policies, such as those around national health insurance mm-hmm. and around expropriation. They're policies that keep poor people poor. They undermine redress. They undermine righting the wrongs of the country's apartheid past, and they must be called out for that and what they are. And people who subscribe to those policies must be prepared, therefore, to carry with them the responsibility for ongoing levels of um, underdevelopment, and uh, low and dipping living standards in our country and the price that mainly poor people pay for that. In, in the end, everyone suffers, Sikhle, uh, I think, and, um, and uh, land, uh, wealthy landowners may suffer significant losses, and I'm sympathetic to that, of, of course. But the greatest victims of societies that choose the ideological direction that the South African government is moving in now are not the relative elites of the middle classes. They land on their feet, they, they leave, they are skilled people, their, their assets are very seldom not a physical thing, a mine, a bank, a piece of land. It's, it's, it's the skills and, and, and their minds that are the asset. The, the real victims of this will again be the same people that were the ultimate victims of South Africa's apartheid past. Question in relation to that. Um, there seems to be this a dreadful dichotomy between a government who is pushing policies at, at, at it's the will of the people. However, our research shows something completely different. The research done over the, the past number of years has shown that of all the concerns that people have over their, their, the state of their lives and their families, um, from given sort of one to ten or one to twelve, land is invariably virtually at the bottom on every occasion. It is not a primary concern. One of the advantages of having this very capable policy and research team that we have, we do polling. And what stands out clearly from our polling and from polling that I'm able to see from other entities is that land is not a priority question for South Africans. What South Africans want in the main is the chance to come to cities where they can put their children in good schools, where they can have a decent home in a safe neighborhood, and where they can have a job through which they can, through their own hard work and effort, uplift themselves and their families. The, 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 the land is very far down the agenda in poll questions. And, and that, that's not strange. Uh, South Africa's potential is to become a successful Western style urban society in, in which people live in cities and do professional jobs and, and are, uh, uh, successful in that. It is, 
It is patronizing, and I use the term very seldom, even racist to suggest that the best thing that could happen to black South Africans is the chance to eke out a living on some plot, either in under the control of a traditional leader or the government, where they can uh, grow some pumpkins and have a few chickens and plant a few millies, because that is what black South Africans want. Uh, South Africa's potential is far greater than that, and particularly the victims of our racist past deserve far more than to be told that at the end what liberation amounted to for you was an expanded homeland system where you can, as one of my colleagues told me, a government policy suggested, they communally graze your cattle on some sort of urban <laughs> park or something. And these things must be called out for what they are. It's, it's offensive to suggest that this is what blacks in South Africa need. The, 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 the black South Africans deserve nothing less than the advantages that white South Africans have had, which is to leave urban areas, to become young professionals, to live here and around the world, to own their own businesses, and to be entirely uh, financially and otherwise independent of their government. All right. Um, maybe in the last uh, 30 seconds or so, um, France... You know, we, we, we're obviously going to have you back on the show and there's many, uh, risk areas that I think we, we need to chat about, you know, from which you touched on today, like the national health insurance and again, threats to people's property rights. The IRR looking forward. What are some of the big initiatives, uh, projects that you, um, are going to be rolling out in 30 seconds? Well, two major priorities, both of which can determine much of the future of the country. One is this vast effort we're investing in saving South Africa's constitution and the safeguarding of property rights. Uh, without that, I don't think we have the potential to attract the investment to grow to reach our potential. And in fact, a lot more is on the line too. Uh, the relationship between property rights and civil rights is, is so close. The second is to advocate ever more uh, strongly, um, which in our case is saying something, given how strongly we've advocated in the past, for the abandonment of all race-based policy in the country. Policies of redress, of affirmative action are important, but the beneficiaries must be identified not because of an accident of birth, mm -hmm. but because they are the poorest and the most desperate of our citizens, and it is good and right that we help them out of that position. Absolutely. That is the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, Dr. Franz Cronier. You, excuse me, sorry, and I will see you after this short break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Through Chai FM, you connect to the world, to Israel, and to the global listening community. But now you can connect to the heart of the station. Download our free app to listen live. Contact the studio, office, or helpline at one touch. Find it on the Google App Store, Chai FM, C-H-I-A-I-F-M, all capitals, and just look for the logo. The Chai FM app is brought to you by Binary Headquarters. All right, guys, welcome back to the IRR show. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I definitely enjoyed that chat with uh, the Institute of Race Relations CEO, Franz Cronier. Again, you can see exactly why we have these quality guests on the show. It's the quality of insight, uh, the quality of analysis and opinion um, that makes the show what it is. And again, you can find all of this work. You can find our writing, our news and analysis on our uh, website, um, the www.dailyfriend.co.za for all your news, analysis, and opinion. Um, 
some interesting comments have come through and some uh, great feedback from the listeners. Thank you very much. We did receive it. We did have a very interesting comment from uh, Moshe. Uh, Moshe, uh, sorry, what did Moshe say? Uh, Moshe said essentially he would like to know why the ANC and the media uh, tend to support, to be supportive of uh, some of the worst and evil, most evil regimes with the worst human rights records, such as Iran, Venezuela, sorry, Venezuela, Libya, and then organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah. Yeah. And there are two, there are two answers, but I'm going to keep them brief because I think this is probably worth a, a much bigger show. Absolutely. The first reason for supporting, and I'm going to use Zimbabwe, Venezuela, countries mm-hmm. like that, is what the ANC admires in those countries is the ability of those regimes to stay in power. Absolutely. And that's why they support them, because they, uh, for, there's no other apparent reason for doing so. Absolutely. With regard to Hezbollah and Hamas, I think that has more to do with the fact that the ANC is a left-leaning organization. Mm-hmm. And globally, the left tends to see, in, in choosing its group of victims, into the intersectionality we mm. spoke of, they see the Palestinians as victims and those allied to the cause of the Palestinians. Mm. And of course, if you have the ideology that suggests that any victim can do no wrong, for mm. example, quote-unquote, blacks can't be racist mm. or any of these uh, um, nonsense things that uh, these lefties will say, then of course you'll overlook the violence of Hezbollah. Mm. Of course you'll overlook the terrorism of an organization like Hamas, because in your mind, they are quote-unquote victims. But yes, mm. you're right, Sarah, we must have a full show on that as we unpack that particular issue. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can reach uh, us on The Daily Friend. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. And, hey, you can reach me, your favorite fat boy, on any of my social media feeds, Instagram, Twitter, or, or Facebook by just searching uh, Big Daddy Liberty. Um, or, hey, look for The Big Liberty Show I, as I put out wonderful con- content now on my YouTube channel and Facebook. Guys, thank you so much for listening to The IRR Show. We'll see you next week.